Greetings, listeners, domestic, international, and extraterrestrial. I'm Dave Reed. And I'm Kristen Riley. And this is The Cast Files. I am a nerd who has somehow never seen The X-Files. And I watched it when it originally aired. Today, we are... (laughs) We are reporting on the real Betty and Barney Hill story. Part two. All right. So in part two, we're going to discuss who influenced this story. You ready? Yes. You gave us a long list of names. Yes. So in 1957, we get this quote from The Interrupted Journey. At one time, several years before, in 1957, Betty's sister and family had described seeing clearly an unidentified flying object in Kingston, New Hampshire. So I went back before the event so that you know Betty is primed to see UFOs. Right. We're going to lay this second part out a little bit, uh, a little bit differently than the first, where I'm going to give you kind of a timeline, what happened, and who influenced the story. So Betty's sister's name is Janet, and she will come up again. So, 1961, immediately following the event. We covered this a little bit, but we're going to just short recap to consolidate everything. The day after they returned home, Betty called her sister Janet to report the sighting and some weird circular shiny spots she found on the car. Janet immediately talked to the former chief of police of Newton, New Hampshire, who was visiting Janet's home, and he immediately told Betty to notify the Peace Air Force Base in Portsmouth, as they had been receiving a steady number of UFO reports in New Hampshire in the recent months. It was really fortunate all this happened, as it did, or the story might have just stayed in the family. Mm-hmm. Barney wasn't taken with the weird circular spots on the car, which frustrated Betty, who was convinced he was denying all this and she didn't know why. Later, Barney explained that the experience had been such a nightmare, so unbelievable, that he desperately wanted to forget the whole thing. Oh, okay. Betty, continuing to be frustrated with Barney, but determined to spread the word called Peace Air Force Base, During that report, she gave only a bare outline, skipping details about the double row of windows on the flying object. She mentioned two flashing red lights, when airplane lights should be red and green, on opposite sides. The officer was interested in this, so when Betty said her husband had had a better look, the officer asked to speak with Barney. Barney was extremely reluctant to come to the phone. He cooperated somewhat, but also avoided details that would be highly discussed later, including that he had seen figures in the craft not in the original report. This phone call began to change Barney's attitude. During the discussion, he learned of other reports, some similar to his own, so he felt less like he would be deemed irrational. Through reading this, it's clear to me how meticulously Barney guarded his image. He worked very hard to be seen as intelligent, rational, dependable. It's fairly obvious he did not have the luxury of being seen as eccentric or irrational though neither Betty nor Fuller come across as understanding why this might be the case. Hmm. It's a mystery. Yes. So let's tally who's involved so far. This is up to a couple of days after the event. We've got Betty Hill, who desperately wants this to be the case. Janet, Betty's sister, the former chief of police of Newton, New Hampshire, plus his knowledge of numerous similar reports. Mm -hmm. Peace Air Force Base, the Project Blue Book. We also have Barney Hill, mostly after the call with Project Blue Book, normalizing the sighting. The neighbors, I don't know if I mentioned them before, but they showed up and looked at the shiny spots on the car. There's not a lot about what they said, so I'm not sure how impactful it was, but they saw the shiny spots. 
And then Janet and her family, according to Captured, but not to The Interrupted Journey. So in Captured, which is co-written by Betty's niece, she says she was there and saw the spots too. But in The Interrupted Journey, he doesn't mention that Janet showed up or the family or anybody else. So who knows who saw these spots? They don't hold significance for a lot of people. Shiny spots on a car? No, not really. They're like these little small discs of shine that when Betty came up and put a compass on them, it made the compass not know where True North was. And in The Interrupted Journey, they spend pages on this. And I'm like... Is that documented? Didn't they get video of that? No. No, they didn't. Okay. (laughs) All right. So now the next time frame is 1961, the days and weeks after the event. We've noted some of the differences between Barney and Betty. Barney told a friend that his reaction was one of a person who saw something he doesn't want to remember. Though there's no indication when this conversation took place, whether it was then, like within those first couple of days, or much later. It's just kind of mentioned. Betty behaved completely the opposite. Her curiosity was ignited. She went to the library to find any possible information on UFOs. This led Betty to studying NICAP material, which led to her willingness to reveal even more details. Basically, as she gathered more details, she had more details to include. Right. So let's continue our list. We have seven people so far. So eight would be NICAP materials at the library, which I'm not anti-library. They should be there. That's great. But it did (laughs) influence the story. (laughs) And nine, Major Kehoe's book, The Conspiracy Theory One. Right. That guy who was friends with uh, Lindbergh. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now that Betty was gathering more clues, she started having increased anxieties that she couldn't quite place. She's reading a bunch of scary material, and now she's having anxiety about it. (laughs) (laughs) At one time, Barney was driving them, and she saw a roadblock, presumably an accident. Rather than stopping or waiting, Betty was overcome by fear. She yelled to Barney to keep going, don't slow down. She even found herself starting to open the door on the passenger side with an almost uncontrollable impulse to jump from the car. Shortly after this incident, a fellow social worker urged her to write down her dreams. Great. So, 10, that social worker. Dream journals. Yes. Now, again, all of this taken in and of itself is innocuous. You talk to your sister about a weird thing you saw. You write down crazy dreams you've had. You read materials about something that may or may not happen. All right. But then you start putting them all together and finding a through line where there may or may not be one. May or may not be. I'm just saying. (laughs) So now we've got 10 different people and things Influencing the story and we're just getting started. Her dream diary includes a scene where she encounters a strange roadblock on a lonely New Hampshire road. The car is approached by a group of men, all dressed alike. As they reach the car, she slips into unconsciousness. This is exactly what she'll recall later, under hypnosis. Wildly, Betty's written dreams include complete details with full descriptions of the craft, the examination, so they were abducted now in oh. her dreams. Okay, how? When, where are we at in the timeline now? Weeks after the incident, when she's having these dreams. I remember there was a month. We were a month out and there's still no abductions. Yes, this is written in her dream journal. Okay, I think it's probably after the, that month though. Probably, it's hard to tell... <laughs> The story is non-linear, even when it should be linear. Oh, even when you're reading it in books and they're telling you the story? Yes. Perfect. Yes. That's how you know something's accurate. Well, that's I tried to make this as linear as possible, but there's some gray area, so... I meant in the books. Oh, I know. But I also tried to do it here and 
failed to pinpoint exactly when the dreams happened. The dreams happened within weeks of the incident. And then she was kind of talking to people about them. And then she started writing. She wrote them all down. And then she reorganized her dream journal so that they made a sequence of events. Oh, cool. Yeah. So within all of, within the weeks and months after the initial event is when this is happening. She has dreams for like five nights straight. But the dreams never go away. The dreams play a key role in all of this. Okay. So put a pen in that. Oh, yeah. And so there's the craft, full descriptions of the craft, the examination, and the humanoid beings. And I want to stop here and remind you that these details were not included in the initial information report. They came about after Betty and Barney had discussions with a wide array of people, and Betty had done quite a bit of research in the library, read through NICAP materials, spoken with her sister and others in the community, and who knows what else. This is also the time Betty writes to Major Kehoe, who introduces Walter Webb to the story. So, October 19th, 1961, Walter Webb, lecturer on the staff of the Hayden Planetarium in Boston, opened a letter from Richard Hall, then secretary of the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon in Washington. As a scientific advisor to NICAP, Webb occasionally investigated the more serious and puzzling UFO reports in the New England area. This letter contained a copy of Betty Hill's letter to Major Kehoe and suggested it might be worth his while to drive the 80 miles to investigate the case. Oh my god, 80 miles in 1961? Yeah. That's like 174 miles in today's miles. <laughs> Side note, Webb believed he had seen a UFO back in 1951. Great. I mean, he's a member of NICAP, so he are, yeah, he's obviously, obviously a believer, but just so that you know, he has also seen a UFO. On October 21st, so two days later, 1961, he drove to Portsmouth. Actual quote, Webb arrived at the Hills house at about noon. Barney was relieved to find an intelligent man who would not ridicule or poo-poo the experience, showing a demonstrable interest in the event, unquote. I'm glad nobody's poo-pooing. Yes. So Barney was sold on his credentials. Another quote, to Betty, Webb appeared to be extremely professional and obviously was skilled and experienced in interviewing people. So, he got them to talk. A lot. He's the Sean Evans of the 1960s. <laughs> so, we have number 11 continuing on our list, NICAP, in and of itself. And 12 is Walter Webb. The interview lasted approximately 6 to 8 hours. It's a long interview. Yeah. It's longer than they were abducted. Yes. <laughs> oh, so how does Barney describe it? Quote, it was a long grilling. He began asking us questions, going over in detail all the experiences. First, we had to recite the story. Then he would have us go back and regress to different periods of the experience so that all the details would come out. Then I would come to this curtain, the moment I put the field glasses on the vehicle and saw this figure up close. And here, I can never get past this curtain in my memory, unquote. That will come up some more, too. So, nothing happened beyond that point but it's a curtain in your memory yes. i don't i don't remember this thing that never happened <laughs> yeah. i also don't remember things that never happened. <laughs> i remember all kinds of things that never happened that's what memory does <laughs> not mine mine just erases everything webb created a timeline map but the hills forgot to mention the shiny spots on the car so those are not included none of them could later account why this wasn't important at the time <laughs> okay <laughs> because in certain retellings, the shiny spots on the car are so important, but when NICAP comes out to your house, no one, no one knows no why one they're important. 
No, no one remembers them because oh. they're not important. Gotcha. No one, re- no one could figure out. Oh, why, why did that not come up in the eight hours we were together? Wild. Yeah. Later, Webb states that he was impressed that the Hills underplayed the dramatic aspects of the case. They were not trying to sensationalize. How often do you suppose that sentiment came up in those six to eight hours? That they were not trying to sensationalize? That he was surprised that they were underplaying the drama. Oh, okay. Because it's really a lot more dramatic than they're trying to say it is. Yes. Gotcha. During Let s- me tell you how dramatic it is. Let me write a book about how dramatic it is. I'm really surprised that this super dramatic experience you had isn't really hitting you so hard. Hmm. hmm. Let's let's go over those events again. Yeah. During his initial NICAP report, Webb states, quote, It is my view that the observer's blackout is not of any great significance, unquote. So they talked and talked and talked until Barney couldn't think of anything else to say. <laughs> and then the lost time, quote unquote, isn't is a big deal. It's no problem. Oh, the lost time hasn't really come up yet. Oh, okay. It's just he gets to this point and then he's like, I don't know what happened after this. And that's kind of where it stops. Okay. Note, Betty also has nothing after this. Of course. So there's a point where they're out on the road. It's the middle of the night. They see a thing. There's all of this excitement around this thing. And then I don't remember what happened next. Yeah, it probably all ended. And then he drove home and then went to bed. Because there was a hurricane coming. (laughs) Right, which no one ever mentions ever again. (laughs) So here's where Homan and Jackson... Start bringing it home. Okay. These are two IBM bros looking for deets on UFOs for their research. Cool. Betty and Barney don't realize they work for IBM until way later. Oh, why does IBM care? Or does IBM not care and they're just like moonlighting? I didn't research why IBM cared. They told me what... So there's. they were working on this paper that sounded super boring <laughs> and I didn't want to read about it. So I didn't add it. What they want to know... Well, I'll get into it. Robert Homan and C.D. Jackson attended the 12th International Astronomical Congress as part of their regular routine. As technicians in advanced fields of science, both Homan and Jackson were interested in the data being accumulated on the UFO subject by NICAP, and they arranged to have lunch with Major Kehoe while at the conference. Okay? Okay. Question answered? I like advanced fields of science. Yes. It gives real... uh... Outstanding achievement in the field of excellence vibes. It really does. It just explains that you've won, yes, that's it, uh, won the first annual uh, Montgomery Burns uh, uh, Award for uh, outstanding achievement in the, the, the field of uh, excellence. In The Interrupted Journey, Fuller wouldn't name IBM. Oh, interesting. But in Captured... They do mention it because IBM is, I guess, a credible company now or whatever. But I don't know why he wouldn't mention IBM then. Yeah. He knew who they worked for. Whatever. Basically, what this is telling you is that some areas of science have a lot more funding than others. (laughs) True. During that lunch, Homan mentioned that he had not heard of many recent UFO reports and wondered if the entire phenomenon was losing momentum. Fortunately... Kiho had just received Betty's letter, so he had great news for them. Oh, fantastic. Yep. It's amazing how all of these pieces just hit. Yeah. 
Like, if Betty had written that letter a week later, none of this would have happened. I mean, that's most stories we know, though. Yeah. It's because stuff lined up perfectly. It's the momentum. The momentum got going. Someone had another question. They're like, hey, this is a thing that we need for our research. Can we talk to you about it? Hey, that detail you said doesn't really fit in with how we understand what our research is doing. You want to you want to take it? You want to do a take two? Tell me a little bit more about it. Yeah. What if it was more dramatic? <laughs> yes. Shortly after Webb completed his NICAP report from his interview with the Hills, Homan and Jackson got in touch with Webb. So all of this happened within days. Mm-hmm. Webb completed his his report. Kehoe had gotten that letter. Well, I guess Kehoe had gotten the letter a couple weeks before. This whole event happened. The dudes wanted to have lunch with the conspiracy theory guy. Of course. IBM Bros conspiracy theory guy. Of course they wanted to have lunch. Yeah, it makes sense to me. It really makes a lot of sense. I wonder if there's a modern day allegory for that. Hmm. Hmm. Tech bro conspiracy theorist? Hmm. Is it maybe not a brand new phenomenon? (laughs) Hard to say. Yes. On November 3rd, 1961, Homan and Jackson wrote The Hills, stating, quote, I didn't quote the whole thing, but I quoted this sentence because every time I read it, it, I think it's hysterical. (laughs) Okay. We are mature people associated with a major electronics and engineering corporation. Very mature. (laughs) Why would you write that? It's a different time. People talk differently. It has to be, right? Yeah. Is that what you would say in yeah. a letter in if 1961? You, if you told these guys that we're legit, they would have no fucking idea what you meant. We are a legit company. No, I know that's what's happening. Yeah. We are mature people. Right, but same thing. Is what I'm going to start writing in all of my handwritten letters. Like, we are dope-ass people. <laughs> I just... We I, are for real, for real. I just... Yes. I just can't believe that that was in part of the we are mature people oh oh my goodness i was afraid that they were immature people (laughs) they requested to meet with the hills so this is november 1961 not even we're two months out yeah we're barely two months out i was gonna say not even two months and then my brain short-circuited their initial timeline didn't work to meet but on november 25th 1961 they met with the hills at their home also in attendance was major james mcdonald an Air Force intelligence officer who had recently retired. This interview lasted approximately 12 hours. Oh, I bet there's a lot of good new information. Yeah. I'm weirdly impressed by all of the different people that the Hills know. They're like, we know this this type of person and this type of person and this type of person. And I'm like, I don't ever have lunch with anybody. No. Times have changed. Times are different. I'm like, can you deliver it to my door? <laughs> The Hills were impressed by the businesslike and professional attitude of Homan and Jackson, with Barney again reflecting surprise that so much attention was being directed toward a subject that he still had lingering doubts about. So we're just compounding. Air quotes, important people are interested in our story. Yeah. And our stories, original details don't have enough to keep the momentum, but... We're going to zhuzh it up a bit. But... If we give them just a little bit of what they're asking for, they'll keep talking to us and it'll be more interesting. This is standard stuff. This happens all the time. And it's wild to me that with reading these two books as just a complete layperson, I can see what's happening and people are still running with this. Like, it's so freaking obvious. Right, but people want to believe. I want to believe. Here's the thing. 
after reading so much about them, I believe something happened, and we'll get into what that is later, but it isn't this. (laughs) (laughs) A question regarding nitrates or nitrites came up. Apparently, during other sightings, these things were present or nearby. Hot dogs. (laughs) At this point... The Hills recalled that they'd left some fertilizer in the car, which had previously been completely forgotten about. So at the beginning, uh, before they went on this trip, there was fertilizer in the car. They left it in the car because they were like, well, we could move it out of the car or we could leave it in the car. And we have literally all done this before. I could move it or I could not move it. (laughs) Do I have enough space for everything else I'm about to move in here? Yes, it stays. Yeah. But because these IBM bros are asking about it, it makes the fertilizer seem much more important. And one of the reasons they're asking about it is because of these other reports they've heard of from NICAP. A lot of the reports have happened out in rural areas where, what's in rural areas? Fertilizer! So fertilizer has been around. So now we have to have a connection. Yes. Okay. So causation... No. Or <laughs> Absolutely not. So what did Betty think about this 12-hour interview? She loved it. She thought it was the best episode yet. <laughs> Kim Manners did a great job directing. <laughs> okay, what would Kim Manners have called this interview? What derogatory short term would he have for this? A waste of my fucking time. He'd probably also be calling them <laughs> IBM bros. <laughs> All right, she says, quote, the questions they were asking were interesting. Now listen to all of these key phrases that come up in here that that might just like go, oh, wait. I know somebody else who says interesting way too often. (laughs) Who? Me. (laughs) Do you listen to this podcast? (laughs) Not always. Quote, so the questions they asked were interesting, mainly because we had never thought along those lines. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. They provoked a lot of thought in both of us. Oh, did they? They sparked new ideas. Mentioning the remote possibilities of life existing on planets involving the Alpha Centauri or Tau Ceti, which was news to me. I don't think I've ever heard of them. Okay. Which is wild because didn't she just read a whole conspiracy theory book and a bunch of NICAP stuff? So she's never heard of... Well, maybe the Alpha Centaurians weren't... Around, around last month? Yet. Okay, that's fine. Whatever. Maybe they didn't come along until the late 60s. Okay. Well, my favorite part of this is we're talking about a story that's in... We're watching this story develop. We're watching it happen. Right. And she literally says, probably not at that time, not in 1961, but thinking back on it, we never had thought along those lines before. This was a bunch of stuff we'd never considered. Yeah. So now we are. Yeah. Great. They just added a bunch of cool shit to our story. And it was from like a scientific engineering standpoint. Yeah, so that's that's uh, mature. <laughs> yes. These two also pointed out the famous missing time, mm-hmm. which had never really been a problem before. Yeah. Because everybody's been on a that's been on a late night road trip at some point is like, I don't fucking know what happened between three <laughs> and five thirty. Are you kidding me? I drove somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Utterly unhinged for somebody to think you would remember every minute of a 19-hour road trip. Right! Oh my gosh. When you didn't stop to sleep, you had planned on sleeping, you weren't prepared for it, it was just a last-minute thing. Five-hour energy did not exist yet. Nope. 
They got into, at that time, they talked about the diners they stopped at, and they had, like, a cup of coffee and a piece of pie, because that was the injection of caffeine and sugar you needed to get through the night. But nothing else was open because there weren't convenience stores open 24-7. Right. So after, like, 11 p.m. Wasting so much time on this road trip. It's really <laughs> aggravating me. They have to, or they're going to fall asleep at the wheel. Amateurs. Also, they have a dog with them. Well, what did the dog see? Delcy the dog didn't see anything because oh. Delcy the dog stayed in the car and apparently never reacted to anything in all of the recollections. <laughs> Delcy's owners got kidnapped by aliens and she was fine with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Pretty much. At one point in one of the stories, I can't remember which book, they um, mention reaching back into the backseat and Delcy was kind of upset, like in the backseat floor. But that was the only mention of Delcy being in any sort of distress through this entire situation. Mainly it was just like, you know, we stopped to walk the dog on the side of the road. And we were concerned about finding a hotel that would allow an interracial couple and a dog to stay. Mm-hmm. And then later, after they return, which I don't get into in this retelling, but I'll mention it now because we're talking about it. Delcy starts exhibiting some behavioral problems a couple weeks after this. So, of course, it has to do with the abduction. Okay. It's not that there's a ton of strangers around all the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. It's also not that they had just adopted this dog. They didn't know its medical history. And then a few weeks to a couple of months after they get it, there's starting to be some health problems. Oh. But they don't have any of the medical history on this dog. So it couldn't have been something from before. It couldn't have been an underlying problem. It had to be... The owners were abducted by aliens. The dog was not abducted by aliens. The dog remained in the car the whole time. But that is what happened. Great. So. Makes perfect sense. If Why not? Why not? Nitrates. Hot dogs. <laughs> okay. So one of the two IBM bros said, what took you so long to get home? You went this distance and it took you three hours. Where were you? Betty says this about made her crack up. And so here's another piece. In the initial report... should point out the crack-up meant something different in 1960s. It meant, like, go crazy. Oh, I knew that already, and that's how I was... <laughs> well, I just... Not everybody might know that. You're right, you're right. No, that's a good thing to point out, because I was just assuming. <laughs> she didn't you're... just bust out. <laughs> right. So in the original report, it does give a time frame of, like, 30 minutes all of this stuff happened. Yeah. But now two hours are missing? Yes. Okay. And... What I assume has happened is in the military report, they're just like, I don't, I don't know, this time frame was like 30 minutes, whatever. I didn't, right. I didn't, that was one of the questions I didn't ask a bunch about. How many times did you stop? For how long each time? At, Sounds like too long. Too many times, too long. At several points in their own retelling at the beginning before all this extra stuff gets added, they are stopping They are looking at this thing through binoculars. They are trading off binoculars. They're getting out of the car. They are walking the dog. Barney goes out into a field at one point. That's where the two hours is. (laughs) Yeah, they're not making good time. (laughs) So here's another quote. For the first time, it fully dawned on them that they were facing a period of simultaneous amnesia, falling roughly between the first series of beeps that emanated from the back of their car and the second series of beeps they encountered somewhere near Ashland, 35 miles south. Wait, the beeps are new. So at some point, they talked about hearing a beep during their drive. They see the UFO. 
And then at some later time, they hear another beep and they're like, oh, we're in Ashland. So their car made a sound is what I assume is happening. I guess. They also at one point, did I ask you this on the last recording or just, I don't remember if it was during the recording or not. So at one point they had, during this journey, they had to stop at a mechanic shop to grease their car because it was making so much noise. (laughs) What the fuck is that? Uh, Greased your whole car? Yeah, it's a thing. Why? Because they weren't good parts. They were old parts. They were new parts at the time, but old parts now. You had to grease everything up, lube it all up, make sure it runs smooth. I am almost positive the last time I asked you this question, you said, no, that's not a real thing. (laughs) I don't know. See, this is how memory works. Yeah, I don't remember. (laughs) This is a a great example of how memory works. Mine doesn't. Oh my gosh. Yeah, okay, so there are beeps. They hear beeps at one point. They hear beeps at another point about 35 miles apart. We don't know how long in between those two it was, but this is where they've decided to insert all of the new information happened between the two beeps. Okay, great. All right. It makes sense to me. Yeah. Might as well be some beeping. Uh, you know what? I don't know what on a car in the 1960s would beep, but... Also, what year is the car? What make and model? Does it have beeps? There... <laughs> beeps by Dre. Is there a... Yes. <laughs> so stupid but i did it um i know what the name of i know what car it is i can't remember it's not that old it's like a 1958 something 57 chevy cherry (laughs) i don't remember i didn't find it important i don't care about car types but but they did put it in there about what it was and i thought i said it earlier but who knows yeah during this meeting we're still meeting with the ivm bros Between the Hills and the IBM researchers, they begin to obsess over the missing time. So up until this point, they're like, all right, so maybe there was some time that we're not accounting for because it was a long drive and nobody expects you to account for every minute of, unless there's a crime and then you must account for every minute of all of the times forever, even though there's no way that you actually remember it. So you just have to make up something and remember what you made up and never falter or else you're guilty. There's a cool Van Halen line. So much to remember. No, no, that's how When you tell the truth. <laughs> that doesn't work in court or in legal proceedings or with the cops or in this story, apparently. <laughs> it's still a song lyric that I gravitated towards. It is very good. It just doesn't work when you're being grilled about shit that you made up. Yeah. It works perfectly. <laughs> Major McDonald is noted as having no interaction or experience with UFOs, but he did have a profound respect for the subject. Oh, good. Which, I mean, at this time, everybody's pretty interested in it. So it's very mature of him. Yes. So he's being mature and professional. He was most impressed by Homan and Jackson as they conducted this inquiry. Most specifically, he was impressed by their, quote, attention to detail and their Posing of interesting and imponderable questions, unquote. Well, if they're imponderable, why bother asking? I don't, I don't know. But I do like their attention to detail, which means if the detail wasn't sufficient enough, they would just keep asking you the questions. Right. That's what that means. And their um, posing of interesting questions is, well, okay, here we go. I wrote some stuff about this. <laughs> A quick memory tangent. How do leading questions affect memory? Because that's what I think is happening here. That's what Dana Scully thinks also. Yes. 
A series of studies by Loftus et al. in 1974 showed that use of questions which are leading can affect the recall of a memory, and things that did not occur can be inserted into a person's memory and therefore distort it. Leading questions suggest answers that imply there is a proper answer. This is when medical hypnosis is suggested. Major McDonald felt the need to contribute something, I suppose. Good for him. He'd become familiar with the technique and felt under the proper circumstances it could be helpful. In fact, he reasoned that the Hills had experienced a violent trauma, much like shell shock, his words, not mine, a condition that often produced temporary amnesia, which had frequently been treated successfully by medical hypnosis. So here's the thing. I'm not against using hypnosis to help treat things like this. I'm also not a doctor, but this concept makes sense to me. Sure. Using hypnosis to recover memories. Garbage. Yes. So there is a time and place, and this ain't it. So another memory tangent for context. I'm wondering if knowing that regression hypnosis is how most of this story came to be, if that would change people's minds now, knowing that that's complete garbage. After the satanic panic, and knowing that there are innocent people in prison still. Still, yeah. If knowing that would get people to, to, to wiggle a little bit. I would love to say yes, but of all of the podcasts that I looked at before deciding I was going to tell the actual story about it, <laughs> all of them came out within the last few years. Nobody mentions this. Okay, I didn't listen to all of them because... Who can? Because they were all the same story. Yeah. They were all that first two paragraphs I said at the top of this. And they, they, sure, they would pull out different sensationalized pieces, but they didn't talk about how the story developed, how the story got to be where it is. So I would love to say that people who are actually interested in the story would pause and wonder, okay, if this all came out from not only, not actually, actually this whole thing didn't come out of hypnosis because it's coming out of all of these interviews by people who have... Are asking them leading questions. Yes, who have, it's being solidified in the hypnosis that's to come, but that's not where it starts. Right. It's not okay. Dr. Simon who started all of this. Okay. So I don't know. But what I do know is that people love to tell this story because it is sensational. The very first abduction story, great. Let's not look into it any further. And then I did, and I was like, oh, it's one of these stories. <laughs> oh, it's the satanic panic before the satanic panic. Yeah. Cool. So um, I'll read this little bit from New Uses of Hypnosis in the Treatment of Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder by D. Spiegel and E. Cardina from 1990. I know that there are more recent reports and, and documentation that I could pull from, but I tried to keep things kind of old since the original book w was written in the 60s and then the uh, the second book was written like 20 years ago. So I didn't want to get stuff like, well, now in 2022, we absolutely know a lot better. 30 years ago, we still knew better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so from this abstract, it says, hypnosis is associated with the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder for two reasons. One, the similarity between hypnotic phenomena and the symptoms of PTSD, and two, the utility of hypnosis as a tool in treatment. Another reason that I pulled this is so that you can see that there is a use for hypnosis in PTSD treatment and then what they are doing. Okay. Uh, just another example of I understand we knew different things then than we do than we know now. But to your point, if people know the circumstances around that time, then we can start looking at what actually happened then. 
through our scope and say, hmm, let's ask some more questions. Yeah. Physical trauma produces a sudden discontinuity in cognitive and emotional experience that often persists after the trauma is over. This results in symptoms such as uh, psychogenetic amnesia, intrusive reliving of the event as if it were recurring, numbing of responsiveness, and hypersensitivity to stimuli. Two studies have shown that Vietnam veterans with PTSD have higher than normal hypnotizability scores on standardized tests, which is also interesting because that comes up later, the hypnotizability. Yeah, that is interesting. Formal hypnotic procedures are especially helpful because this population is highly hypnotizable. This makes sense. And hypnosis provides controlled access to memories that may otherwise be kept out of consciousness. All of this makes sense because if you're trying to retrieve a memory that is causing you a lot of distress, your body will shut it down. Your brain body will not let you retrieve that. Again, all of this is fine. New uses of hypnosis in the psychotherapy of PTSD victims involve coupling access to the dissociative traumatic memories with positive restructuring of those memories. So this is why I'm reading this, because this is telling you we are retrieving, we are finding these memories, and then we are associating them differently. So that they are no longer causing this amount of distress. What we are doing is saying, okay, so in Vietnam, you saw your whole platoon get blown up. All right. That's traumatic because you are barely 18. What are we going to do? We're going to try to get you, get you, move you past this, this cycle that you're, this memory cycle that you're in. Hypnosis can be used to help patients face and bear a traumatic experience by embedding it with a new context, acknowledging helplessness during the event, and yet linking that experience and remoralizing memories such as efforts at self-protection, shared affection with friends who were killed, or the ability to control the environment at other times. Basically, they're saying, this happened, it's not currently happening to you, let's associate it with something else so that you can move out of this traumatic cycle. In this way, hypnosis can be used to provide controlled access to memories that are then placed in a broader perspective. So I mention all of that to say, again, hypnosis has its place in psychotherapy. Retrieving recurring memories and pretending that that is the truth, again, isn't it? But that's what we're doing here, at least with the broader story. The hills are noted as being highly hypnotizable by Dr. Simon, but we'll get there. Also, I'm not anti-hypnosis for treatment purposes, but for uncovering lost memories and portraying them as the truth, there's too much evidence that this is false. That night, Barney mentions his ulcers, so we're still back at the 12-hour... Can you imagine going to a friend's house and then some dudes show up? And they're like, oh, well, we're going to we're gonna just talk about this incident. And you're like, cool, I'll hang out. 12 hours later, you're still there. I could do that back when I was drinking. Oh, my God. I'll tell you all kinds of stories. Oh, my God. 12 hours? No, thank you. The stress that the sighting and subsequent interviews has caused were starting to inflame his ulcers further. Barney has a lot of health problems. Barney is mildly reluctant, but his health is suffering now, and what puts him over the edge is the hope that it will, quote, clear up Betty and her nonsense about her dreams, unquote. (laughs) So that was basically his reaction to the suggestion of maybe hypnosis? (laughs) Maybe she can quit talking about this shit. Betty is all for it, with the proper doctor, because she's begun to believe her dreams may, the ones she's documented and then reordered to make more narrative sense, they may be more than dreams. So now we have 13 and 14 
Robert Homan and C.D. Jackson, and then 14, Major McDonald, all influencing this story. In February of 1962, a series of pilgrimages began that were to continue for several months. Betty was stoked. Barney was ambivalent. No clear recall came back to them, and they couldn't agree on where the events took place. Yeah, it's a long stretch of, uh, not even highway. It's a long stretch of road. Yeah. In the middle of nowhere. Yep. They went out there several times, which I'm sure really helped Barney's distress and stress level. He's also driving like 60 miles to and from work and just all of this stuff. My goodness. In March of 1962, Betty has lunch with Gail Peabody, a state probation officer and friend, who recommends a psychiatrist when Betty mentions hypnosis. That was Dr. Kirk. They met with Dr. Kirk later that month. For the doctor's sake, he listened and decided it might not be the right time to explore this mental block, Uh, though he does dismiss the notion of simultaneous hallucination or amnesia, which was a relief to the hills. Oh, that is a relief. So I feel like Dr. Kirk is the only person who's like, I don't think there's anything here. (laughs) I think you guys have some problems, but not this. I think your problems stem from pretending this is a thing. (laughs) From talking to too many people. Later in 1962, Barney's stress levels are rising and his health is declining. He works with another doctor and begins therapy sessions. This is with Dr. Stevens. They do not focus on hypnosis or the UFO experience, although the interrupted journey has this to say about Barney's treatments. Quote, during the therapy, Barney became more aware of the special conflicts and problems arising from being a member of a minority race. Are there? Are there special conflicts and problems? Not that. That's not the point I'm making. (laughs) During the therapy is when Barney became aware of this. Barney's 40. Yeah, but this is the first time. He's never experienced racism before in the 1950s. Oh, my God. Just this whole book blows my mind. His mother's grandmother was born during slavery, her father being a white plantation owner. Unquote. (laughs) Unquote. Yeah. So this is what we're working with. This is this is the angle we're coming at Barney's side of this story is that maybe there's some racial problems, but he didn't know until he talked to this white doctor in oh. 1962. What a wonderful white doctor this is. What is, what is happening with people? We can win an Oscar. This is... Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, let's make that movie in, what, 2019 and win an Oscar? <laughs> oh, shit. Every time this would come up, I'm just like, isn't Barney, one, experiencing literally all of this, and two, working with the civil rights movement? (laughs) Didn't you guys say that 42 times in the first chapter? I remember it from part one of our podcast. Goodness. Just throughout both books. They're like, yeah, and you know, he had no idea. (laughs) What? Wait a minute. (laughs) What? All right. Also, Barney and his doctor feel at this time, according to the book, that his traumas are vast and the UFO experience is only peripheral to the case. Betty, in the meantime, is not in distress, though her dreams have fired up her curiosity. So that's where we're at now. I'm going to (laughs) say Dr. Kirk doesn't influence the story because he's just like, I don't think this is it, guys. (laughs) Later. (laughs) (laughs) And then so far, Dr. Stevens is... Just, you know, trying to treat his patient. Because that quote did not come from Dr. Stevens. That quote came from Mr. Fuller, who wrote the book. Okay. 
just to clarify. So September 1963, the Hills are invited by their church discussion group to relate their experience with the UFO in the White Mountains. So this is two years later. That should be fun. This is timely because more UFOs are increasing in frequency. I guess UFO sightings. Or maybe UFOs. Who knows? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) At this point, I don't know. I I think I do. Okay. I think I know. (laughs) They're increasing in frequency in New England, and people love to gossip. That was my note, not Dr. okay, not Mr. Fuller's. <laughs> Once again, Betty was stoked. Barney, not so much. They met a hypnotist at the church event hosted by their minister, Captain Ben Sweat from Peace Air Force Base, who also recommended hypnosis. Though, fortunately for us, he declined to be the one to hypnotize them as he was only a lay person. Uh, I, I gotta get a professional. We Yes, and everybody is saying that, which is good, but also like, what do you mean a professional what do you whatever i want to talk about this church discussion group scenario for a moment because in captured they mentioned that the church put together this group at the minister's home you know that happens fine the original event was based around this guy who had just published a book of poetry so they came together to kind of celebrate and he was going to read some of his poetry and they did that He and the people who were there for the poetry left, and then the rest of the church group started discussing UFOs. And that's when this hypnotist met the Hills, and so it was like a poetry slash UFO discussion, which is like... Deaf UFO jam. Man, I'd go to that. (laughs) (laughs) When Barney mentioned this discussion, so all of that happened, and then Barney mentioned this discussion to Dr. Stevens at one of their next sessions, Dr. Stevens changed his mind about the need to be hypnotized and the importance of the events that they, remember, they weren't focusing on. Right. So now he's decided maybe they should be focusing on it. Yeah. Okay, good, 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 good. Yes. He decided it might be time to talk to a professional hypnotist. Dr. Stevens is not a professional hypnotist, but he does know one. That's good. So... Enter Dr. Benjamin Simon, the man with the tapes. How much did Dr. Benjamin Simon charge for all of this? I don't know, but they and did have... They did, did Stevens get a kickback? Man, I don't know. So now we have Gail Peabody, which is actually 16. That makes 16 people. Gail. 17, Dr. Stevens. 18, the entire church group that stayed. I need to change my numbering here um and then 19 their minister because he actually got them to come and do all of this oh and then 20 captain ben sweat and then i guess 21 would be dr stevens at this point so we've got 21 different people yeah to within two years of this and i'm skipping some of the other people who are just kind of mentioned right so now we are in december of 1963 because it takes a while all of this stuff betty and barney begin their sessions with dr simon There's a lot of details about their intake. Some of them were questions about how much it was going to be. Uh Uh-huh. I didn't get an actual number, but he, Mr. Fuller did write about that these were parts of the discussions Uh because it was obviously going to be expensive. But basically, they all started working together. Dr. Simon believed early on that their experience with the UFO was an important facet in Barney's failure to respond to earlier treatment. So basically, he was like, oh, your other doctor is totally wrong because he said not to focus on this. No, we're going to focus on this. For a small fee. Right. He quickly decided they both required treatment for anxiety. By this point, Betty's nightmares had begun to cause her extreme anxiety. Though, 
I have to note that in both books and in multiple other places that I read like pieces of this story, two full books and then other pieces, it appears that these nightmares were the series of five nights way back in the beginning, not recurring nightmares, not consistent nightmares, just those nightmares she had that one week way back when. Are causing her anxiety now. Now. That's two years later. Doesn't seem likely. <laughs> and I saw, so I said, as someone who has nightmares, I have questions. <laughs> Dr. Simon explains his technique. Uh, we won't go into all of it because it was like pages and pages and pages, but I do have a little bit of what to expect and maybe some other things that make you go, hmm? <laughs> You're feeling very sleepy. You're feeling very relaxed. I'm always feeling sleepy, so... All right, so while under hypnosis, the individual will recall details and answer questions. However, they will not be remembered upon waking. The doctor will take notes and record the session so they can return to the details in the future. Fine. Basic stuff. Awesome. There's a long series of paragraphs explaining hypnosis, who can be hypnotized, etc. And here are a few key points that I highlighted for emphasis. There need be only the added suggestion of feelings of comfort and freedom from anxiety. The word suggestion. That's nice. Right? I suggest to you that you're chill. Yes. The suggestions given during the induction will be carried out as post-hypnotic suggestions. When you wake up. You will be a chicken. Bok, bok. <laughs> and there are three general stages of hypnosis. Light, medium, and heavy. What does this mean? I know this from tampons. <laughs> Yep, tampons always hypnotize you. <laughs> With light, medium, and heavy hypnosis. Yep. <laughs> they do hypnotize a lot of men when they're in that aisle. Yes. Oh, God! <laughs> Which one? Ah! How do I choose? Why did she make me pick these up? <laughs> well, to be fair, there are like 18 brands, and they all have vibrant packaging. <laughs> and everyone has their preference. Yeah. <laughs> That specific product makes sense for people to have preferences. Yes. If people can have strong preferences about which cola they're going to drink. Yeah. Royal crown. All, the <laughs> all right. So light. Catalepsy of the eyelids, which is the inability to open the eyes at, all, at will, can be produced on suggestion. And a certain degree of suggestibility is present. Medium hypnosis. Mater catalepsy can be produced. That's essentially the temporary paralysis of major muscles. Basically, you can't get up and walk around. You just can't do it. And analgesia, which is the insensitivity to pain. Both can be suggested. So if somebody's like, your head is getting heavy, your head gets heavy. And if they poke you with a pen... I want that one. I want somebody to analgesia me. <laughs> your hips feel fine. Right. Your hips don't lie. Yes. And no, then, your hips do lie. Yeah, there you go. Because they're not in pain. And then you can carry it into post-hypnotic state. Hell yeah. That'd be cool. And then there's the heavy state. Almost any phenomenon can be produced. Almost any phenomenon can be produced. Excellent. The patient will be amnesic unless he is definitely told to recall the trance state. So you have to take them out of the trance and be like, now you remember. <laughs> Specifically, I am telling you. Also, positive or negative hallucinations may be induced. And post-hypnotic suggestions given in this somnambulistic stage will be very effective. Great. We can implant memories. Yeah. It's basically... I love how all of this is just written on the page. 
Yeah. And people are like, see, it's working. See, it's real. They really got abducted by aliens. And I'm like, it is working. But that's not your argument. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Throughout the next chapter in The Interrupted Journey, Barney is under hypnosis and Dr. Simon is asking questions. I took most of this piece from The Interrupted Journey because there's a lot of, there's a lot of crossover between the two books. So I didn't feel the need to go back and forth at this point. Mm -hmm. And also there's some, each of them have access to, or I guess both of them had access to the tapes at this point. Neither one of them printed all of the tapes in full, which makes sense. But I think you can get them if you would like to review them. I just didn't want to. Yeah. Some of these, these sessions are like hours long. Yeah. Forget that. So, yeah. Ain't nobody got time for that. No. Not, not when this is side project that I <laughs> decided to do and then ended up putting so many hours into. Yeah, no. But if you are interested, it's available. So throughout the next chapter in The Interrupted Journey, Barney is under hypnosis and Dr. Simon is asking questions. The author, Mr. Fuller, loves adding his opinions throughout to reinforce that the hypnosis is working, which I found distracting and like he was trying to talk us all into believing. Yeah. Which is interesting because at two different points, Barney says, quote, and Betty passes the binoculars to me, and I see it's not a satellite, it is a plane. <laughs> he also says, quote, That is what I said, and that is what I saw when I returned to my car. A Piper Cub. Oh, a specific plane. Yes. Great. <laughs> Unquote. No opinions are added after these details. Oh, I wonder why. Barney concludes this portion of the session with, quote, I say to myself, I believe Betty is trying to make me think this is a flying saucer. What? (laughs) Fantastic. Dr. Simon continues on the Piper Cub line. Barney continues with his narrative about the plane and how he wonders if the pilots are military and that they shouldn't be doing what they're doing because it's rude and dangerous. Rude. (laughs) How rude. Once again, Barney says, quote, Betty, this is not a flying saucer. What are you doing this for? You want me to believe this thing and I don't. Wow. I don't know why military people would be in a Piper Cup, though. I don't either. Seems a little far-fetched. Less far-fetched than it being a UFO. Man, I don't know. This is taken by the two books as Barney refusing to believe this is happening, but not that Betty is incorrect. Great. Both books want to believe Betty. Oh, yeah. Of course. Barney then recalls the time he was in French Creek with his two boys and a military plane buzzed them. I mentioned this in part one. So Barney has experience with bullshit pilots. Betty does not. Barney has experience with pilots being rude. <laughs> I like that you pulled that out. I believe that was just my wording. I don't oh, think really? he actually said that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's not very mature of you. It's not mature of <laughs> pilots to be buzzing people who are just bathing in a creek either. No. It's rude. It is rude. <laughs> I just can't get over... The word that I picked was not from Barney. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That was not a quote. That's why I did not say (laughs) quote. (laughs) The session continues. Um, At first, I couldn't recall if this was one session or multiple, but this was all... I went back and looked at it, and it's all one. This this is all the first session. Uh, They do get back around to the 1961 event. At some point, it's unclear if Barney is reciting what he's recalling happened or if he's in more of a dreamlike stance. Mm Mm-hmm. I guess trance more, a more a dreamlike trance. When Barney can't recall some details, he says things like, quote, I think of, I think of a redheaded Irishman. I don't know why, unquote. Then, quote, he looks like a German Nazi. He's a Nazi, unquote. 
this is when he's describing seeing the windows on the um, on the flying thing. Oh, so they're not aliens. He describes what the Nazi is wearing. So he gets more detailed on the Nazi. The session continues and Barney comes to a point where he gets very emotional. At first, he's tickled that the dog, Delcy, has just stayed in the car the whole time. This is when it starts to kind of become more unclear. Bef- up to this point, Dr. Simon has been asking questions. Barney has been answering the questions. Now it's like, I don't get, I don't know. I don't, I'm kind of thinking of this. I'm not really sure. Oh, you know what? He looks like a Nazi. Here's what Nazis wear. Mm-hmm. So at this point, he's, he's like, okay. And then there's, we're on the road. And there's the aircraft and Delcy. Oh my gosh, Delcy, you silly dog. Why are you just in the car hanging out? Uh, Not barking, not doing anything. Dr. Simon asks where Betty is. Barney doesn't know. This sounds like a dream state to me because at this point it sounds like he's going, I'm on the road. I see a thing. Oh my gosh, my dog. My dog is here. Wait, where is my wife? It's just the two of you on this road in the middle of nowhere on a road trip in the middle of the night. You would know where your wife is. Yeah, it, he wasn't told to know where his wife was. Yet. Right. All at once, Barney starts shouting, and this scene follows. Barney, I don't understand. Are we being robbed? I don't know. Dr. Simon, what makes you think you're being robbed? Barney, I know what's in my mind, and I don't want to say it. Dr. Simon, well, you can say it to me. You can say it now. Barney, they're men, all with dark jackets, and I don't have any money. I don't have anything. That is line by line from the tapes. This continues. He continues expressing what he's seeing. They are men. They refuse to talk to him. And there are orange and red lights. This morphs into only eyes, no bodies. Barney laughs and says it's a wildcat, like the Cheshire cat in Alice in Wonderland. (laughs) He's essentially free associating now. He sees things, then he doesn't. But he's no longer afraid. He's floating or not. It's unclear sentence to sentence what's happening. This continues for a bit, and then they wrap up the session. So what do you think so far? Uh, in regards to specifically what? What he's saying. What, this session. Yeah, like you free associating, like you said. He's just jumping around from thing to thing, and none of it makes sense. At this juncture, Betty hasn't been hypnotized, but she heard Barney's outbursts during his session. The book notes the walls were soundproof. But how soundproof really, if you're actively planning your hypnosis sessions around times when people will not be there in order to keep them from hearing what's going on. Dr. Simon says he specifically scheduled them during these times when no one else would be around so that the outbursts that he knew would happen wouldn't disturb anybody, but also that the walls are soundproof. Yeah, I have no idea. I'm going to say they're not soundproof. Okay. And Betty's sitting in there in the hallway listening to the parts where he yells. Maybe the walls are, but the door's not. (laughs) All right. They have additional sessions, sometimes coming back to the details from the initial report, other times diving into the other details. Betty picks up on the military men, but she also over-explains their time in the UFO, which isn't how Barney remembers it. Why? Because in Betty's retelling, Barney was knocked out. Oh. What continues to recur is the mention of a roadblock or accident, men in the road who caused both of them distress and lost time. These men in the road come up repeatedly in Barney's sessions. The case quickly begins breaking down into two separate phases. The initial encounter, which we have documents and reports on, and the second encounter, which is believed to have taken place off Route 3, involving a roadblock and the bizarre description of the abduction aboard a spacecraft. During Betty's session, 
She also gets upset when they get to the men in the road. She recalls she was very afraid. She says they had some sort of uniform on. After this, she gets into the abduction detail, which Barney did not. Sometimes she says she can see them speaking, English, of course, and other times she knows they're speaking but can't recall their lips moving. This, once again, sounds fantastical and like a dream state, as though she's shifted to recalling her dreams, much like Barney did in his session. So these are the first two sessions, really. And I'm going to end on this. In fact, there's a paraphrase in this book that reads, quote, She did not know at the time, nor did Barney, that her recall was almost identical with the long report she had written about her dreams, unquote. Okay, so the believers are saying that that's evidence that it's real. Yes. Instead of she's just remembering her dreams. Yes. The sessions continue, and as they continue, both separately and together, their details start to merge a little bit more. The books say, how could Barney have known? He wasn't in there when she was saying this. But this is years later, and she's been talking about her goddamn dreams since she had them. Yeah. Barney knows the details of her dreams, and no one will acknowledge that. She wrote it all down. Yeah. And made it uh, linear. And he keeps saying, forget your goddamn dreams, Betty. Yeah. But in both books, they're like, look at this. As the sessions go on, he's now recalling things that she said in previous sessions that he wouldn't have known if this, because he wasn't in the room when this happened. And I'm like... They live together, and he wants her to stop telling him about these dreams. (laughs) That's how he knows about the details of the dreams. Yeah. So there's a lot about dreams. There's a lot of people involved. There's more and more hypnosis. This goes on for months and months and months, but basically we have the whole story at this point. They, The time with Dr. Simon is essentially recalling all of the details that we've gathered up to this point, and then just reinforcing them. After the sessions... There is a series of articles that's written in the paper by someone who didn't talk to the Hills or Dr. Simon. They all refused to talk to this journalist. (laughs) Well, you wrote the story anyway? Yes. And so then after that happened is when Mr. Fuller got in touch with them and got the, the paper, got permission to see the notes and listen to the tapes and write his story. Because after the initial story was broken by the uh, by the journalist who didn't talk to anyone who was actually involved, but probably talked to one of the four dozen people the Hills yeah. had already spoken to, the Hills, specifically Betty, was like, well, I guess the story's out there and we aren't receiving a bunch of ridicule about it, so maybe we tell our actual story. And by the time they get, fine, by the time they get to the, here, it's 1966, and... The story has evolved so much that, sure, tell your story because it's going to be much more fantastical than whatever that guy picked up because he hasn't been along for the entire ride. Right. Throughout the whole thing, Dr. Simon is doing whatever he's doing. By the time this book, The Interrupted Journey, is written, Dr. Simon does have an intro to it in the foreword, and he's like, look, I maintain that I don't know if they saw a UFO. I don't know if they were abducted. I do know something happened. And that's what I was trying to get to the bottom of. What happened? How do we move through this? Whatever. Fine. Mr. Fuller, on the other hand, is like, they were totally abducted and there was a (laughs) UFO and there were all of these other UFOs and whatever. I think something did happen on that road that probably involved a roadblock. On a 19-hour drive, seems like there might be a roadblock somewhere. I think they might have gotten 
stopped by someone who saw them at one of those diners and had a problem with an interracial relationship, stopped them on the road, did something awful to them, and it's horrifying to recall. Mm. So what's nicer to recall? I don't... It was aliens, not a bunch of white dudes in the middle of the country. Interesting. Because they both had different responses during waking hours before it got super into all of the details where they were having traumatic experiences when there was a roadblock in real life. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if something like that happened. I wouldn't either, but it seems like conjecture on our part to yeah. say that. <laughs> this is conjecture on everybody's part. Well, what do you think happened? I think they saw a plane in the sky, and that's the beginning and end of it. It was being erratic, but I do believe that the... Maybe they saw multiple planes. Maybe. I think the military... Is probably and a satellite and a Kroger beam of light. Fine. If you don't want to believe that a bunch of good old boys stopped him in the middle of the road in the middle of the night, fine. Here's another thing that I have to say. I think the military is covering up for a lot of erratically flying pilots. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a drunk pilot. I don't know if they're drunk or if they're just assholes. They might just Chuck be Yeagers. assholes. They're probably just like, look, we're out here. We're doing these night flights and... Whatever. There's one car on this road. Let's uh, buzz them. <laughs> Reasonable. I bet that happens a lot more than not. If you're going to recruit 18-year-olds, you're going to have some pilots who are just never mature. They are not mature <laughs> They're professionals. They're not mature. Not like the IBM. They're not the IBM bros. So I think at this point, we have something like 25 different people. Giving their input. Yes. And adding details. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you think they just saw a something and... Uh, Definitely saw a Piper Cub. For him to pull out a specific plane. <laughs> the amount of times he he reiterates that in both of the books and the retellings, he's like, it was a Piper Cub. I know what a Piper Cub looks like. It's right. like it was a Piper Cub. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know what a Piper Cub looks like, but you sound like you know what you're talking about. Right. Which is exactly what happened through the rest of this story is, well, I don't know what that engineering thing is, but you sound like you know what it is. So maybe that's what it was. Right. <laughs> I don't know. It's a lot. How do you think that this retelling holds up against the story that you knew in the beginning? It holds up a lot uh, when compared to what I believed already. This is a lot more details, but obviously I never believed anybody got abducted by UFOs because I don't believe in any of that. Right, but that's not really my question. Oh. Coming into this, you had expectations of what the story was going to be. How do you feel about that now that we've gone through two hours of this? No, I feel like it filled in the details of what my expectations were. And how insanely out of control a narrative can get when... Yeah, having a ton of people involved with adding the details and everything is a little... Yeah, that's that's more than I knew or expected. I think from talking to you in the beginning, it was like, yeah, these people made this story up. But it wasn't just these people. No, lots of people made this story up. A lot of people made this story happen. Yeah. And honestly, I think... Barney would have been much happier if none of this this happened. He might not have died in his 40s. Right. He may have, he may not have, but... This seems very stressful. Throughout this whole, throughout both books, it was obvious that Barney was like, I don't want to do this. Mm -hmm. And then he did go to therapy, so kudos to him for being like, I'm having all of this insane stress. Let me go get help. 
But even in therapy, he's like, hey, should I be talking about this? Is this a big deal? And the guy's like, you've got a lot of other things going on. Let's focus on the real things and (laughs) not the dreams your wife had two years ago. Final thing. Throughout all all of the stuff I read, I couldn't find a single instance of them being nice to each other. Betty and Barney? Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's just, stop trying to make me believe in UFOs. And she's like, why don't you fucking believe in these UFOs? <laughs> I don't understand. The Cast Files is produced by Kristen Riley and Dave Reed. Edited by Dave Reed. You can find us on Twitter at Cast Files. You can find me on Twitter at Dave Reed. That's D-A-I-V-E-R-E-E-D. You can email us at thecastfiles. That's the with two E's at gmail.com. If you could please go rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, give us five stars and tell us that we are doing phenomenal things. Artistic, wonderful things. We are raising the bar on podcasting. We would love you forever for that. We have a Tee Public store. You can go buy t-shirts and stuff there. Music by Hal Six. Logo by Atuka Art. That's O-O-K-A-A-R-T. It was crazy. Wow. Yeah. Wonderful. I guess it was different in the 60s. That was how you showed affection by... Hating each other? Hating each other out loud to everyone. Great. <laughs>